That's on page 518 of the um, Bible that you have in the seat back in front of you if you want to pull out that Bible if you don't have your own. Isaiah 48, 12 to 22. I don't know if you heard the true story um, a while back of the couple who almost lost over a million dollar jackpot because they wouldn't believe that they'd really won it. It's been a few years now and I'm a little foggy on the details, but basically they got this call that they'd won the sweepstakes or something. And um, they were like, yeah, right. They thought it was a scam. And uh, the company tried to contact them several more times and the couple kept hanging up on them. And uh, the deadline to claim the prize was fast approaching and finally the whole thing hit the news and the couple's friends and family saw them on t- saw this on TV and started calling them about it. And and then the couple started to wonder, well, maybe we re- maybe there is something to this. And finally, I think the company sent a representative to their house and finally persuaded the couple in the nick of time to accept their prize. Phew. <laughs> well, that's what today's passage is about. It's about the tragedy of turning down a jackpot that could be yours. As we've been looking at various passages in Isaiah 40 to 48, we've um, become familiar with the historical context to which these prophecies are addressed. God's people are in exile in Babylon. They've been languishing there for over half a century. And now the prophet Isaiah has begun, begun proclaiming good news that the Lord God has renewed his concern for his people and is raising up Cyrus the Persian to conquer Babylon and to bring the Jews back to their homeland to resettle in their towns, to restore their city Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple. And as we've seen God's people respond to this gracious offer of salvation by arguing with God and by ignoring his offer. Lord, you don't really care for us, they say. You're obviously not able to help us. You're not strong enough. And even if you were, it would certainly be stupid and offensive for you to use Cyrus, the pagan Persian, to rescue us. No, thank you. We're going to stick with our idols and our false gods, which we've been worshiping in Babylon. That's how they respond. What do you do if your God and your very own special people give you a response like that? The people you've committed yourself to by a covenant, to be their God, to have them as your people so you can bless them and protect them and love them and care for them and so they can follow you and worship you and show all the nations of the world that you really are the one true God and your ways are good and right. In this part of Isaiah, God repeatedly calls himself the redeemer of his people. And this Hebrew word for redeemer is goel. It's a word often translated kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. The goel in Israelite culture was a close male relative who had the responsibility to take care of his family. If you fell into poverty and you lost your land, the goel had the responsibility to help you buy it back. If you yourself were sold into slavery to pay your debts, the goel would help to buy you back. 
If you were a man and you died childless, the goel would marry your widow to provide for her and to father children who could inherit your estate and so carry on your name and honor, which were also important in that culture. If you know the story of Ruth, Boaz was hers and Naomi's goel. He was their kinsman redeemer. A goel was strong and dependable. A goel was family at its very best, looking out for one another. Like the little boy or girl on the playground who doesn't have to fear the school bully because they have a big brother at that school who loves them and protects them and won't let anything happen to them. And God reminds his people in verse 17 of our passage that in the bigger world, I am your big brother, he says. I am your goel, your redeemer. But what do you do when you're the goel and your family, your, your kid brother, your kid sister won't listen to you and don't want anything to do with you? Or what do you do if you're a parent and your child who's in trouble rejects you and won't listen to you? Well, you don't give up on them, do you? You keep trying to get through to them, and that's what we find God doing in this passage. Three times God pleads, listen to me, verse 12. Come together, verse 13, and listen, verse 16. Come near me and listen. Listen, that's God's plain of cry to his people in this passage. So what does God want his people to listen to? What does God want them to hear? What message does God want to get through to them? Three things. First, it's the message that he is the creator of the whole universe. Verse 12. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. How would you like to have a goel like that? Someone bigger than our problems. Someone bigger than all we hear and worry about on the six o'clock news. Someone bigger than the nations which threaten us. Someone who was there at the beginning who knows what it's, or how it's all supposed to work, how it all goes together. Someone who will be there till the end. Someone who sets the stars in space and holds the atoms together. Do you think it would be a good idea to listen to someone like that? Second, God wants his people to hear the message that he alone has the power to control history. Verse 13, come together all of you and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally, that is Cyrus, will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him and he will succeed in his mission. The Lord has the power to control history and because he directs it, he can predict it ahead of time. We saw this two weeks ago that on the, the Cyrus cylinder that they found, the, um, the Persians claimed that it was the Babylonian god Marduk who raised up Cyrus to conquer the Babylonians. 
That was a nice boast, but it was a boast only after the fact. Once Cyrus had conquered Babylon, it was easy for Marduk's supporters to, to come along and claim, see, Marduk did that. But the Lord says, oh yeah, nice try. Read the book of Isaiah. Because I predicted that I would raise up Cyrus to conquer Babylon even before it happened. That's something Marduk didn't do, couldn't do. Marduk didn't know that it was going to happen before it happened. The Lord alone can say what the future holds because the Lord alone controls the future. And as we saw two weeks ago, he directs it to two ends for his own glory and for the good of his people. Third, God wants his people to hear the message that it's through his word that he personally accomplishes all he sets out to do. By his word spoken by his prophets, he predicts what he's going to do. Then by that word, he personally comes to accomplish it. Verse 16, come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. In other words, God hasn't been sneaking around or acting clandestinely. No, he's been clear. He's spoken plainly through his prophets about what he intends to do. Other so-called prophets who spoke on behalf of their gods were just vague enough in their prophecies so that just about anything that really happened could be made to fulfill their, pro their predictions. But in the case of predicting Cyrus, God couldn't have been more clear. He even mentioned Cyrus by name. And he adds, at the time it happens, I am there. I am personally coming to see this prediction through to fulfillment. In other words, I who speak and I who act are the same. I who predict that it will take place am I who speaks the word which actually makes it happen. So when I predict it, it is as good as done. We see this also in the repeated use of the word called in our passage. Verse 12, Israel whom I have called. Verse 15, I have spoken, yes, I have called him. That is Cyrus. God speaks, God calls, and his call is effectual. He, he calls his people into being to be his people and they become his people. He calls Cyrus to rise up and save them. And Cyrus is raised up. The idols can't speak, but God governs the universe through his word, calling his will into being. And when he speaks his intentions into being, he is there personally to ensure that they take place, to create the world, to command history, to redeem a people for himself. Listen, God says. Why won't you listen to me? Why won't you hear and acknowledge these things? And from God's people, in answer to God's plea, there is a resounding silence. Like when you're talking on the phone to someone and, and you're jabbering away and the person on the other end is listening so well that, that eventually you start to wonder if they're even there. So 
You stop and, and you ask them if they're there. Silence on the other end. You ever had that happen? <laughs> and you realize they're not there at all. And then you wonder at what point along the way they stop listening, right? That's the kind of conversation God, the Goel, is having with his people. There's no one on the other line. No one is listening. That's why elsewhere in Isaiah, God calls them his blind and deaf servant. What do you do when your children just won't listen? I wonder how often God, our Goel, asks that of us. Oh, sure, we read our Bibles, at least some of us do. And sure, we listen to sermons. But are we really listening? Maybe we hear the words we read in Scripture. Maybe we, we hear the words the preacher saying. Maybe we even dutifully write down the helpful or profound ones in our notebooks. But are we really listening? Are we listening with our hearts day by day to what God is really trying to say to us? Are we taking it in? Are we taking it to heart? God's word is absolutely, absolutely transformative, calling God's new reality into being. Are we letting it transform us? Or does it go in one ear and out the other? Well, God's people in Babylon don't listen. They don't hear. They, they don't want to hear. They're blind. They're, they're deaf to who God is and to what God is trying to do. So what is God going to do about them? Here in Isaiah, this is a watershed moment in the Lord's relationship with his people. You see, God's people had closed their ears and their hearts to the Lord long ago. You can read about it in, in the Bible in, in books like Kings and Chronicles and some of the other prophetic books. And, and that's why God sent them prophets. And when they refused again and again to listen to God's prophets, God could do nothing else but discipline his people by sending them into exile. And he did. He chastened them good. The Lord took away their blessings and their protections. He kicked them out of his promised land. He, he turned his back on them and he let them suffer for their sins. Then when they had paid for all of their sins, he renewed his concern for them. In, in Isaiah 40, he proclaimed, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He sent his messenger to them to proclaim the good news that their hard service had been completed and their sins had been paid for. It's time to go home, he announced. To be reunited to your God, to, to enjoy his blessings again. But now, eight chapters later in Isaiah, we realize God's people are still not going to listen. They don't want to go home God's way. They don't want the Lord as their God. In other words, the exile has failed. It's failed. 70 years of exile. God has disciplined his people and they haven't learned a thing. Nothing has changed. 
His people are as sinful and as idolatrous as ever. If you read through Isaiah 40 and the chapters following, you come to realize three things. That first of all, God's people won't even admit that it was their sin that landed them in exile in the first place. They don't see that they've done anything wrong deserving of God's punishment. So second, therefore, they conclude they must be in exile because the Lord is actually worthless. God must be too weak to protect them. God must not really care for them. Either way, God is unreliable and obviously can't be trusted. And third, they think God is foolish to propose sending Cyrus, the pagan Persian, to save them. I mean, what is God thinking? You see, they're blinded by their idolatry. And one of their biggest idols was nationalism. The idea of having a Persian savior offends their national pride. And because their country is more important to them than their God, they won't have it. Maybe that needs to be a lesson to us as Americans. And so where does this leave this people? It leaves them looking to other gods, to the gods of the pagan nations. It leaves them worshiping idols. Nothing has changed. The exile didn't work. In fact, we know from the book of Ezra that when Cyrus does send the exiles home, only a fraction of them are even willing to go home. The majority of them prefer to stay in exile. So what is the Lord going to do? What would you do if your children or your kid brother or kid sister who you care about and are trying to protect, protect shut you out and refuse to listen to you and, and put their trust in other protections? What will God do at a watershed moment like this? Well, in verses 17 and following of our passage, we find out. God will do two things. First, he will give his people more grace. And second, he will give his people even more grace. First, he'll give them more grace. Despite their continued sin, he will save his people. He'll bring them home from exile anyway. In verse 20, he urges them, leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Just as God had brought his people out of the bondage of Egypt so long ago, so now he will redeem his people again. There will be a new exodus as God through Cyrus brings his people out of captivity back to the promised land. Yet notice the story that Isaiah alludes, alludes to in verse 21 to describe this new exodus. He recounts a double-edged story. The story from Exodus 17 about Israel thirsting in the desert. It's a story about God's gracious provision, about how God gave his people water out of a rock to sustain them when they were thirsty in the desert. But it's also a story about the Israelites' sinful unbelief, about how they grumbled and they quarreled with the Lord there. And that prepares us for verse 22, the last verse of this chapter. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. 
Now, as you're reading through just this part of the chapter, this verse is a jolt, isn't it? All this positive stuff about God redeeming his people again and announcing it with shouts of joy. They're going home and and God will provide for them again like he did when he redeemed them from Egypt and they were thirsty and he split the rock and water gushed forth. And then he concludes, there is no peace for the wicked. What? What kind of ending is that to an announcement of salvation? But in a way, we should have seen that end coming. Because the people who are going home are no different from who they were when they left home. Alec Motyer, in his excellent commentary on Isaiah, concludes, They went into exile because of their sin. They stayed without moral reform or even recognition of need. They returned as they went. They came back to Canaan but they still need to be brought back to the Lord. A change of scene does not produce a change of heart. And that leads us to the second thing God does for his faithless people. He gives them even more grace. We only get a hint of it in this passage, but it becomes crystal clear in the ensuing chapters of Isaiah. As in chapter 49, the very next chapter, God leads out onto the stage of history another Savior. Cyrus was the first Savior to provide political salvation, but a mere political salvation didn't work. It didn't really change his people at all. And so they go back home to God's promised land, but they will have no peace there. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and that's the picture you get. They have no peace back in the promised land. And that's God's plaintive complaint in, in verses 17 to 19. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. Your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand. Your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. But they won't pay attention. They remain hard-hearted toward God. And so back in their land, they have no peace. But God, their Redeemer, their Goel will not leave them like that. No, he will give them even more grace. He will raise up for them another savior, one who can effect a spiritual solution to deal with with his people's sinful hearts. Who is this one? The servant of the Lord, Isaiah calls him. We met this servant back in Isaiah 42 several weeks ago. We saw there that God's people were supposed to be that servant, but But Israel was blind and deaf. They were utterly unwilling and unqualified. And so God found a new servant. Next week and the week after, we'll look in more detail at at who that servant will be as we get into chapters 49 to 55. Because Isaiah 40 to 48 is about, um, has been about the salvation of Cyrus. But chapters 49 to 55 will be about the salvation of the servant. 
But right here in chapter 48, tucked in at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 16, is a hint about this servant. Someone there speaks and says, and now the sovereign Lord has sent me endowed by his spirit. And who is this one who speaks? It's a bit of a mystery. But experts on Isaiah note that this language, sovereign Lord, is used of the servant figure in Isaiah. And this idea of coming with the spirit is used of the Messiah. Just to quote uh, one uh, most, probably the most obvious example, think of those uh, famous words in Isaiah 61. Jesus quotes them. They're words about the Messiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. There's that same language. So back in our verse 16 here, could, could this one who speaks be the servant saying that he's about to come? Now that Cyrus's political salvation is clearly going to fail, I think God is getting us ready for the fact that he will need to send a new savior to redeem his people. A servant endowed with his spirit who can rescue his people from their sins. God is about to give his people even more grace. Never let anyone tell you the Old Testament doesn't talk about God's grace. All right, well, that's our passage. And so now the question is, what's God's message to us here today in all of this? What do we need to listen to and to hear? Well, during our week of prayer, and particularly on the, the Monday of our week of prayer, as we were praying for CBC and seeking God for what he has for us in the future, I had a strong sense of God's love for CBC, for us as a church. And, and as I was having that sense, verses 17 to 19 came into my mind, and I couldn't realize why. And then I realized, oh yeah, you're preparing a sermon on this. <laughs> Let me read them again. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand. Now this is both an amazing, assuring promise and also an urgent warning, isn't it? It's like an announcement that God is offering us the whole jackpot. But he's also warning us lest we ignore the phone call when it comes. God wants to give us rivers of peace. Shalom is the, the Hebrew word there. Well-being, healing, wholeness, flourishing. And not just trickles or, or streams which might run fast and full in some seasons, but then dry up in others. No, rivers, which are always full and true. And God wants us to know well-being like the waves of the sea. This word well-being is translated in other translations as deliverance or righteousness. It has to do with God giving us what is good because we're in right relationship with him. And Isaiah pictures this like waves, which are relentlessly powerful. There's spiritual power and spiritual blessing for those who walk rightly with God. 
Finally, God wants to give us spiritual descendants to multiply his own son's life in us, in others. So that our efforts combined with the efforts of others of his followers will add up to a multitude like the sands of the seashore. That's the jackpot that's on offer to us as a church. Abundant shalom. Powerful well-being. A vast impact on other people and on this world and on this county. But like God's people in Babylon, we can refuse the whole thing by not listening to what God is trying to tell us, by ignoring his commands, by going our own way, by doing it in our own wisdom and in our own strength. We're a smart bunch. We're a talented bunch. We're used to succeeding and getting things done. We're used to applying our minds to problems and figuring things out. I know I catch myself relying on my own strength far too much. And so as we make a concerted effort as a church to refocus and to figure out where we're going and to chart the course for the future, I think God is urging us, listen to me. Listen to me. Trust in my wisdom, not in your own. Your prosperity is not found in strategic plans or ministry resources alone, but it's found in coming back to me first and foremost with your whole heart. Laying down your idols. Repenting of your spiritual complacency and your moral compromises and drawing close to me. We saw it this morning in that video. There's a world out there desperately in need of good news. But if we're too distracted with our own little worlds, then we can't hear what God wants to say to us and how he wants to use us. So here's the challenge for us this morning. What is God saying to you? Maybe it's a nudging you feel in your heart. Maybe it's an uneasy conscience. Maybe it's the word of a friend or a family member that hits home. Maybe it's a verse that sticks out to you as you read your Bible. Maybe it's something from a sermon that really hits you. Are you listening? Or have you been ignoring it? Resisting it? Have you been too busy to stop and to respond to it and to deal with it? Well, I want to give us a chance to respond this morning. We, we don't do this a lot, but I want to give you a chance to, um, to come forward to receive the rivers of shalom and the, the waves of well-being that God is offering. And if you haven't been listening like you should, and you're in danger of missing the call about that jackpot, for whatever reason, then it's a chance to come forward as a resolution that you're going to start listening.